So speaking of bashing, uh, the patent office. Yeah. No. Oh, so we're going to get right to it, huh? Jonathan, I don't know if you're familiar with the format of the show, but we usually engage in quite a bit of nonsense before we get to anywhere substantively interesting. Um, but Joe apparently wants to go right right to it today. <laughs> well, it just seemed like such a natural segue. And and you, <laughs> his paper, your paper doesn't, in fact, it, it, it sort of bends over backward not to bash the PTO, which I think is uh, good, I suppose, if you're if you're writing something that fundamentally and substantively is critical. But it's not bashy critical. It's, you know, well, it, it's not bashy critical in the sense, uh, Jonathan, you can jump in and, and, and defend the it's honor of the, of, of the PTO rules, here. Sure. It, the PTO should be applauded for trying. It, it's like it's like every like uh, stereotype of like millennials you ever hear in the way they've been raised. <laughs> right. It's like you know, it's like a, an A for effort. Kind yeah, of thing. Everybody trophy. gets a trophy. Right. Yeah. Cousin Goober really did try to get to the right. supermarket, but, <laughs> but he just got lost a few times on the way. But Jonathan, your paper is OK. So they should be applauded for at least trying to take account of costs and benefits as they are required by the executive order to do in establishing certain rules, which we'll talk about for the administration of the, of the patent office and, and certain procedures. But they get it conceptually wrong. They get it empirically wrong. <laughs> everything about it is wrong, 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 wrong. Is that basically a summary? Yes, I think that's fair. I've never uh, heard my attitude compared to, you know, the parent of a millennial treating the PTO as a millennial. I, I really love that. That's true. Um, right. Okay. So I guess I would say the following things in defense of the PTO. So number one, cost-benefit analysis is pretty hard. In, you know, in other papers, I've looked at how lots of different agencies do cost-benefit analysis, and it turns out that the ones that have been doing it for 35 years, like the EPA, they've gotten pretty good at it. But there are a lot of agencies that have barely been doing it at all, like the Department of Agriculture, and they're not very good at it. So this is really the PTO's first effort. And did so, we say PTO is Patent and Trademark Office? We did. That seems like a good piece of information. Yeah, right. Um, so yeah, so I'm willing to cut them a little more slack, given that this is the first time they're trying it. And then in addition, figuring out the economics of patents is really hard also. You know, the evidence about this is a little scarce and scattered, and I don't think anyone could say that they conclusively know the answer. You know, this is a lot harder than, for instance, figuring out the health effects of emitting less mercury or less chromium into the atmosphere or something like that. We have a lot of data on that kind of thing. We've been studying those problems pretty effectively for a lot of years. This is tougher. So I'm willing to cut the PTO a lot of slack um, when it comes to figuring out the details and the empirics. It was just the fact that they conceptually don't seem to understand what patents are doing that was disturbing. Now, so let's focus on, because there was a recent Supreme Court decision, which uh, actually just the other day, yes, that uh, ruled on a portion of what you're writing about, not directly on any of the concepts you're dealing with in the paper. But, but before we get into any of that, and before we even get into, because I think the paper touches on patent economics more broadly, mm-hmm. what, what are the particular issues that you deal with in this, in this paper? So the Patent and Trademark Office issued a regulation setting fees for essentially everything. So fees for applying for a patent, fees if your patent gets rejected and you want to reapply, fees for maintaining your patent over time, and um, fees for all sorts of various administrative proceedings as well. Uh, Like if you want to file for post-grant review of somebody else's patent. And those fees could conceivably have a pretty large impact on the patent landscape, because if you put your application fees really high, that will dissuade people from filing patents in the first place. If you make the renewal fees, the fee you have to pay for renewing a patent after a few years, make that very high, people are going to uh, hold off on renewing patents and maybe let their patents expire instead. 
And so you, you want to understand exactly what's going to happen um, if you set fees at a particular level so you know what the best level is. Because the PTO, this is, uh, this is a policy lever that they have control over and they should you know, be trying to use it effectively and that's what they claim to be doing. All right. So, so I've invented something yeah. like, in the, like in this case, this, uh, yeah. this weird speedometer thing, which is hooked up to GPS and indicates red when you're exceeding Talking the speed limit. The, the Quoto case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 We'll, we'll link yeah. it up in the show notes. But let's suppose I've invented that. Let's put aside all the weirdness run invention and what that means. But so, so suppose I think I want to get a patent for that. I apply for a patent to the PTO and I pay a, an initial fee to get that, to get my application examined. Right. And right. that fee is about what, did you say about $1,700? Yes. The increase. Okay. And then after, and you tell me how many years you can, uh, you can apply to renew the patent and their fees due at that point, which it's not it, renewal, it's maintain. And they, and there are three of those three and a half years, seven and a half years, 11 and a half years. And it, that maintenance fee keeps it in force. So it's not that it, it lapses and you're trying to redo it. It's okay. to keep it in force. Okay. It's called the maintenance right. payment. And so if I, pay my, if I pay that maintenance fee all the way through to the 11 and a half year, then I get to keep my patent all the way through the 20th year. Is that right? Exactly. So, so I, just, I thought it would be useful to get out the specific number here so people get a, get a sense of scale and incentive, right? So it's about 1700 bucks. And then what are those renewal fees? Do you know? So they go up over time. So the uh, the initial renewal fee is a couple of thousand dollars, and then the seven and a half year mark, it's um, I don't remember the exact number. It's it's around five thousand dollars, and then by the time you get to eleven and a half years, uh, you're up close to ten thousand dollars. Now these have been set by statute, but in 2011, Congress says to the PTO, "Here, you guys, you start setting the fee as an administrative procedure matter, right? So you promulgate fees now, Patent Office, and." Um, and I suppose that way it could keep up with things like inflation and it could keep up with that, whatever your best estimate of the costs and benefits might be. That's one of the possibilities the PTO looked at, right, is using the consumer price index to increase the fees over what they had been set at statutorily. Right. Wasn't that one of the alternatives? Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and they opted not to go with that. And so first of all, before we get into your critique, what would be if you had to set out the the dominant reason why you would have higher fees for renewals and and let's just call them below market fees for initial application because the fees are set below that needed to maintain. You know, if that were the only fee they were collecting, they would they would need constant infusions of cash from the federal government uh, from, from from Congress, which which they don't have. But so instead, they kind of balance the books by having higher renewal fees. What's the kind of the conceptual a conceptual story there, Jonathan? So I think the best story you can tell is let everyone in the front door um, and let everyone file for patents with cheap application fees, because at that point, they might not know whether the, uh, the invention is actually valuable or not. Um, they might. So let them let them get in the door, let them file for a patent, and then they can sort of figure it out as they go. And if it turns out that the invention is really valuable, then that's fine. We'll charge them a lot of money. Uh, later on to to maintain the patent. But if it turns out the invention is not very valuable, then they're going to let it lapse because they don't want to pay the maintenance fee. So we let everyone in the front door, then we sort of perform a weeding function later in time. And I guess one thing you could wonder about at the outset, if, if, that, if that basic logic or that basic policy story is persuasive, you could ask yourself, well, gosh, if that's true, I wonder why we would charge anyone a filing fee at all. Why not just make the filing fee zero uh, and make the maintenance fees, which is the place you've decided to get the money, why not just make those higher? Um, And indeed, I suppose the second thing you might wonder after you wonder why it's not zero is, why isn't it negative? Um, Why aren't we going out and paying people to file 
um, to induce even more people to share their inventive ideas because maybe fewer people are sharing because they're under resourced or and and you say oh that would be bad so I mean just w this logic doesn't seem to have a place to stop in terms of how low you set the filing fee and how yeah, these, high you these set possibilities the are actually making me physically ill Joe as you I, I see <laughs> he, he is turning green I can verify that for the listeners um, uh, it looks like he's in the on the on a very bad roller coaster um, but do you see my point Jonathan it's not it, it seems like that logic itself is consistent with a great many other arrangements as between a lower filing fee and a higher maintenance fee. Yes, uh, I, I think that's exactly right. And the PTO, I mean, there are things that, that would push back and want you to have a, an initial filing fee that's more than zero or more than negative. So maybe you think it's a bad idea to have a huge rush of patents in those initial few years, because if you get too many patents, even the time period before the first maintenance period, you're going to be overwhelmed with patents you have to deal with. But in any event, you know, you're right. And the only way to sort through all of this and figure out the answer is to actually try to run some numbers, which the PTO doesn't really do. They not only kind of walk through the CBA, but they do include a and, and they don't they don't just choose an option, I should say, but they but they actually give some indication, some argument about their kind of concept of costs and benefits here. Right. And that's one of the areas of basic disagreement that you have with the with the PTO and their concept of and kind of contrary to your initial reaction to Joe was that more patents are always better. Right. So that uh, every patent issued is a benefit. Yes, I guess because it represents a unit of innovation. But if that's the case. Right. And you choose the model of of higher fees or just fees at all for renewals then it would seem to say, yeah, they should like incentivize initial patent applications because everyone is a, is a benefit. Right. Well, what the PTO says is a little bit different. I mean, so that what the PTO says is that um, every patent is a benefit to the person who owns the patent. That patent has some you know, non-zero value to that individual. And so it's good if lots and lots of patents are issued. And, and that, um, that is a true statement about the world. It's just not relevant from the perspective of social welfare, or at least it's not a complete picture. Um, because the problem is that patent, which is valuable to one person, might be harmful to three other people out there. But what I supplied as a reason for having, um, you know, having a price that's greater than zero for the initial application, that's not a reason that the PTO latched onto. Right, uh, exactly. PTO, right, in line with what Joe said, the PTO treats all patents as good. And I, I wonder, let's, it's just on their terms. All right, this is a little facetious, maybe. So Joe's, your look is going to turn even more sour when I say this, probably. <laughs> but let, let's suppose that all private benefits were in fact social benefits. Can you not argue that in fact a, a patent troll would be better off if he or she adopted a different path in life? Because? Because patent trolling is inherently personally degrading. <laughs> I don't right. know how much progress we're going to be able to make Actually, on that well, one. No, but, but if, you, if you do take a, uh, a serious attempt at CBA and, and you do count every private benefit as a, as a public benefit, I don't know that the, the world in which you patents are easy is better on a private welfare basis than a world in which patents are hard, right? I mean, because people who invest in patent trolling and filing a bunch of patents would do something else, right? They, they've foregone other opportunities. And, and my claim is they'd be better off with those other opportunities. That, that might be true. I, I don't know if they would feel the same way. I mean, they're probably, as they count their money, uh, they're probably feeling pretty good about their choice of occupation. But that doesn't mean the rest of us should. You have to wait to see Godfather 3 to see that ultimately Michael Corleone <laughs> did not die a happy man. Um, uh, speaking of patent trolls. Uh, okay, let's get serious again. <laughs> <laughs> 
so so one critique you just made was that the patent office didn't monetize, uh, didn't try to quantify. But then you started to make a deeper, a sort of deeper analysis, which is they don't actually even understand or don't appear to talk in a way that suggests they understand the difference between social benefit and private benefit. I think what's so interesting about the paper, as I step back and think about it, is the degree to which cost benefit analysis can step away from the the social commitments priors that the statute itself embodies. And I think that gets to the deeper stuff that, that you and Eric Posner are, are writing about in terms of, you know, cost benefit analysis in a more global perspective. But, you know, is the patent office really free to act as if patents aren't a social benefit? I think that the patent office is not just free to do that, but obligated to do that. Because the statute doesn't treat every patent granted under every circumstance as providing a social benefit, and courts don't treat them that way either. And moreover, you know, when you're when you're obligated to perform cost benefit analysis, you're supposed to actually tabulate up the costs and benefits, not just sort of invent your own uh, normative values in which things that are bad for some people are now turned into being goods. So I think it was it's incumbent upon the patent office to actually think about whether patents are good or bad for innovation. Because, you know, the statute doesn't say just grant more patents or just promulgate the regulation that will lead to the most patents. If the statute said that, then the agency would be obligated to do that. Um, and it should I mean, it should also be doing a cost benefit analysis because it's, it's obligated to do that by executive order. But it, but it has to comply with the statute. But instead, you know, the Constitution says. Um, to promote the progress of a science and the uh, useful arts. And the statute says to promote the progress of science. And so these are, uh, these are provisions that are about what will actually lead to more innovation and you know, better outcomes for people, not just more hats. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think the statute on its own terms, I mean, if I were, if I were confronted with the job of making a statutory argument in favor of the idea that the PTO can can and should be very open to the notion that patents can be granted improvidently, I would point to things like the fact that you get to raise the validity of the patent in an infringement proceeding, right? That's a sign that Congress knows that the PTO can make mistakes. Right. Not to mention the fact that there is a possibility of post-grant review where you can take a patent that's just been granted right. and send it back for further review. Yeah, a much more a much more recent provision. I mean, the, right. the court challenge to uh, issued patents has been around for well over a, a, a century and a half. So I, I think that's that's one where it's sort of, uh, you know, so thoroughly woven into the fabric of, of the 1836 and thereafter patent system that I, that I think it's beyond question. The, the, the reexamination and... and uh, and post-grant review stuff is more recent. But but yeah, I think you could point to the statute and you could say you have to take account of the fact – you, you have to give meaning to the fact that the PTO can make mistakes and the statute is framed on the assumption that the PTO does make mistakes in granting patents, right? Um, right. But, but even so, ha- so how do you start to do that? How does the patent office get its arms around the idea – uh, in terms of social cost and and benefit, as opposed to private cost and benefit, how how does it figure out, for example, how many what what's the social benefit of having this many more patents as opposed to half that many? Well, it has to try to figure out how much these additional patents are actually going to lead to more innovation, and that's where economists have done a lot of good work, and that's where a lot, a lot of good studies are sort of looking at changes in the law and how much they lead to more innovation or less. 
Um, that's on the benefit side. And then on the cost side, it has to try to figure out if we allowed three times as many patents, could that actually slow down innovation? Because now anytime you want to invent something, somebody's already got a broad patent on it. and You have to go license from them before you can uh, do any research. And there's research on that too. People have looked into changes in the patenting laws and how much that affects whether people can do follow-on innovation as well. And so, you know, there there's evidence about this sort of thing. And so they have to think through the problem on both the cost side and the benefit side. The statute, is there any evidence in the statute as to whether Congress gave to the agency this fee-setting ability because it said, you know what, we, we can't quite figure out how much it costs to run this office, so you guys figure it out reasonably. Or whether it said, you know, here's some criteria for patents and here's kind of what we think, but we want you also to use fees as an instrument of social policy in order to encourage some kinds of patents and discourage others. For example, a legislative intent which would be consistent with the patent office is establishing a much higher fee for software patents than for pharmaceutical patents. Is there any evidence in the legislative history or or in the statute itself about which of those was intended? Not really. I mean, the statute is pretty much silent about whether the patent office is supposed to be trying to use fees for social planning or other purposes. Uh, But I guess I would say, number one, there is no such thing as just use fees to fund the office because that those decisions are, you know, endogenous for the patent office, they could decide we're only going to hire 10 examiners. And so we're going to run the leanest office you've ever seen with 10 examiners and an annual budget of $500,000. And then the, P, the fee that we have to charge per patent is $2. And that's it. Now, of course, the result of that would be that it would take you 10 years to get your patent granted, but they could do that. So the very decision to have a certain number of examiners and you know grant patents over a certain span of time or whatever, those are all policy decisions. There's no such thing as a non-policy decision when it comes to what the fees are going to be. That was actually going to be my, my follow-up to it. You know, So I- even if it is the uh, – I don't know which, which way I said it, but e- even if Congress only intended you – know, was kind of getting out of the business of funding the patent office because it hated having to keep up with consumer prices or whatever, you know, there's no way to do this without – affecting policy. And I, I was just imagining right. that for a fixed backlog, for a fixed backlog, kind of the more money you throw at the office, the more patents it can it can process, right? Right. Similarly, for a particular fee, you'll get a certain number of patent applications. And that's that that number is declining in the number of in the fee, right? So if the fee is on the x-axis and the number of applications is on the y-axis, you've got a, a downward sloping line. Whereas the patent office capability is an upward sloping line in the fee for a fixed backlog. And at some point, those two numbers are going to cross. And, and, and you might call that point the kind of ideal funding point for a fixed backlog. You know what I'm saying? Right. I mean, again, even the decision about whether you want to keep the backlog fixed is a policy decision. And, it, you know, it's the, the patent, it, that patent office's view is that they want to reduce the backlog and reduce the amount of time it takes to get a patent granted. So, they're not even going to, they haven't even set fees at the point at which those two curves cross. They've set right. fees slightly higher than that so they can hire more examiners and reduce the backlog, which is their number one policy yeah, objective. Yeah, it's, re- it's really a three-dimensional graph. And the, and the right. point is, if you only control the fee, then you have, uh, you right. know, exactly. So, But they're controlling every axis of the graph in, in, in essence. Right. Because they get to decide how many people to hire. They get to decide how they now get to decide how much to charge for the different things a person does at the office. Right. And they get to decide the workflow of the office. Right. I mean, if you only control the fee, you control the policy. 
right? Because if you control the fee, you can basically set the number of patent applications you expect to get. Right. And you can set how, how you fund the, how you pay people. And so you can basically set the backlog, you know, but maybe right. you can't do both of them. I'm trying to think in my head. And I right. Don't. I mean, the, the only constraint is that they can't hire more people than they can pay because it's a completely self-funded agency. So you can't say that they're going to hire, you can't say I'm going to hire a million examiners and only charge everyone $10. So those two things are linked, but you know, it, aside from that constraint, you can move the fees up and down and then you can take the money and hire more and fewer examiners and you're going to get more and fewer patents. So you can play with a lot of these variables. The Patent and Trademark Office has said publicly they're not in the business of making policy about who submits patents or how many patents should be submitted or exactly what the patent system should look like. They're just trying to raise money um, and fund their operations. So just in line with exactly what you proposed originally, mm-hmm. they've said that a lot. Then they issue this regulation, and the regulation on its plain face says, here are the objectives we are trying to achieve with our patent fees. We are trying to achieve more patents being applied for up front. We are trying to achieve a lower uh, period during which you have to wait for your patent to be granted. We are to, trying to reduce the backload, backlog of patents, and we are trying to um, force people to make uh, better decisions about their patents and whether or not to maintain them uh, as time goes on. So despite all of their protestations to the contrary, in the regulation itself, they basically say, we're going to do policy. Here are our policy objectives. And as I said, I don't think there's any way to get around that because you can't just do this in a vacuum. You're going to have to have some sort of policy objective. But they admit to all of that. And so that's perfectly, I think that's completely reasonable. Once they're doing policy, they might as well do it intelligently. And there's no way to get around it because whatever you do is going to have a policy effect. Even if, Exactly. And a policy effect without an intention is irrationality. It's also clear in this recent fee-setting regulation, it's not just policy undifferentiated, it's a specific policy. I was reminded and thought you might put in the paper the old quote attributed to Bruce Lehman then commissioner in the in the late 1990s or early aughts, you know, hey, after all, we're not the rejection office, we're the patent office. Uh, so in other words, they're not there to tell people no. They're there right. to tell people yes. Now, in the uh, paper is a is an anecdote about they're there to serve their customers, right? This kind of customer yes, and they yes. which is a perfectly consistent with that, that exactly. other quotation, yeah. this, this idea that, you know, the users of the patent system are the people getting these rights to exclude people from competition. Um, so yeah, the antitrust person in me, my skin crawls when I uh, see them referred to as customers. Um, so, so, so yeah, they're going to set policy. They've got all these levers that they can use. Uh, and, and you say, Hey, let's do it intelligently. But I still feel like we're not over that quantification hump. Like, like how do they do it quantitatively? And and I keep asking that because you mean, I how sort should of they? Feel like part of what he says is that they don't, right? They only do it well, qualitatively. They don't, but and they but they and if they should, how would they? And and there's a certain I guess I want to get to in terms of the critique of people doing CBA and doing it correctly. It's not that they have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be flawlessly quantifiable. Um, well, how do we decide how quantifiable is enough? Like, isn't a rough estimate just a failure to quantify by another name? Yeah, I mean, I can imagine somebody taking that view. That that's not what I think. I I would be the first to say I think that the quantifiable uh, sort of to quantify these costs and benefits is the hardest part of all of it. No question, it's very difficult to put exact numbers on the effects that allowing more or fewer patents or more or fewer patent renewals is going to have. I don't think there's it makes any sense to insist on any kind of really real exact precision. 
But, you know, you would think they would at least try, have tried some back the envelope calculations. They would have taken some of the empirical evidence that existed and tried to put a few numbers here and there on things. Or at least they would have tried to make educated guesses about what the effects would be. And as I say in the paper, there are some shortcuts. So, you know, if you raise the initial application fee from $1,700 to $2,500, you're going to get fewer applications. But the applications you're not going to get are the ones where people think that the invention is worth less than $2,500, but more than $1,700. You know, and the question is, are those really the sorts of inventions we have to worry about incentivizing? So at the margins, it might be that your, uh, your negative effect on innovation from increasing the patent fees is actually really small. So they could have used shortcuts or something like that. They don't even get anywhere close to any of that. They don't even start to think about those sorts of questions, partly because they just don't even acknowledge uh, the real costs and benefits of patents. So, yeah, so if they use shortcuts and, and, and other techniques, these are just ways of approximating an ideal cost-benefit analysis, if one could exist. And, and basically, I guess what we're trying to do is to, is to set out what the value of the world would be with the regulation and the value of the world with some alternate regulation or right. some alternatives, right? And obviously, like right off the bat, someone's going to say, how do you value the world? <laughs> and CBA oftentimes presumes that it's about preference satisfactions and that preferences are, um, I always forget, endogenous? Is that is that right? Or exogenous? Treats, treats them as exogenous. <laughs> yeah, but the, the, the word is a funny one, right? So the preferences yeah. are basically exogenous to the choice, meaning that, exactly. it, it, but they are, it, I always think endogenous to the person, right? <laughs> meaning that, you know what I mean? That, that, anyway. <laughs> they're, inter- right, they're interior to the person. They're interior they're, to the person. They're not but, influenced by the regulation. Ex- you exactly. have your set of preferences and nothing I say or do will change them. And now it's just a matter of whether you can satisfy it. Exactly. So, it, so that's already a simplification of the right. state of affairs. And then we go further and say, OK, let's let's measure the, the quote unquote value of the world under these two options by by looking at all the pluses and all the minuses and, and imagining they're kind of a discrete number of each of these things. Right. So there are kind of discrete numbers of features of this regulation, which will add benefits, which will kind of bump up the value of the world. And there are kind of discrete number of features that are costs or will will lead to decreases in the value of the world rather than maybe something more complicated. And and so CBA often proceeds by trying to identify these discrete costs and these discrete benefits. And so, so, you know, obviously part of the exercise is one of imagination. Can you imagine all of the consequences and and how far out do you want to go? Second or third order consequences of this? And, you know, you can just think of it with patents, right? If there are more patents, then what happens? If there are fewer patents, then what happens? Part of what you disagree with here, and we can either talk about that more fundamentally if you want, or, or we can just go right to kind of what they did and, and what you imagine they should do. You, you just think that they get wrong the benefits of patents by identifying private benefit with this overall public benefit, and they get wrong the costs. Because I, I, I guess what you would say, and I got this from the paper, right, the benefits of, the, of, of a patent are, are, going, are going to be the increased that kind of dynamic incentives on innovation. Uh, driven by that patent. That's one major source. There are a bunch of costs, including like patent thickets, the cost of administration. I forget what some of the, you have one more and I'm forgetting it off the top of my head. Right. Deadweight loss to people who have to pay higher prices. So I think those are the main three costs, right? It's the kind of deadweight loss caused by the monopoly, the uh, the patent thicket problem, basically transaction costs that are caused by the creation of a bunch of new property rights. And the third is just the cost of administering the property system. Right. On on the benefit side, and this is what you say that they should be doing, and on the benefit side, I guess, the dynamic incentives for innovation. Um, and I forget if there were others. I know our uh, my former colleague, Paul Heald, has written about the, uh, the benefit to the patent system for transfers, right? This is kind of a cozy and clear property rights, and if they're clear property rights, people might deal better. 
with one another and, and transfer information, induce to do something other than keep your invention secret. And, and patent might do that through disclosure. To make it more tradable. As Mark Limley's written, right, the, the, one of the functions of the trade secret regi- regime is to increase the number of transactions, right, by giving you some ability to kind of back up confidentiality agreements and, and the like. So, uh, so I guess that could also be a source of benefits. And, and then if you went to second or third order benefits and costs, I imagine we could think of a lot more, you know, if we trace out particular kinds of patents, you know. Um, and, and in fact, you know, one of the things I think you didn't talk about in the paper or you know is the way the market is constituted say just take pharmaceuticals where there's some evidence that maybe patents induce a certain kind of innovation and 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 one of the pieces of evidence you have is that when patents expire um people don't what was it the people don't pay less for no the amount that the the amount of units prescribed and consumed the price obviously the changes, price will but, go down yeah right but the amount of being used doesn't drop suggesting that people were using it uh, and just dealing with the fact that it was more expensive. Yeah. And Did but, we get that right, Jonathan? Sorry, it's really that the, the, amount, the amount of it that you're consuming doesn't go up by a lot. Yeah, right. The fact that it's now cheaper doesn't necessarily mean that a lot, many, many more people are getting access to the drug. Which, which may be some evidence that patents didn't cause this deadweight loss problem uh, in pharmaceuticals, but it might also be evidence that the market is weird to begin with, right? Because insurance companies are paying for drugs, doctors are getting visits from pharmace- pharmaceutical reps. I mean, it's, and the kinds of pharmaceuticals people are, are making are, you know, sexual dysfunction pills and, uh, and, and what you might call slight innovations. Like, you know, instead of taking this three times a day, you only have to take it one time a day and they're making this kind of drug, but not treating this other kind of disease. I mean, so I'm, I'm just trying to ima- imagine like all of the second and third order benefits and costs that you might come up with. Is this a tractable problem? In other words, given that every actual CBA that we will do you know, if we sit down with pencil and paper and add up costs and benefits, that it is only an approximation of that ultimate calculation of the difference in value between worlds. Is the approximation better than hand-waving? Okay, so I think these are sort of interesting and really kind of deep questions and concerns that you're raising about cost-benefit analysis. And, you know, just to abstract away from the Patent and Trademark Office for a second, you know, other agencies aren't really getting these second and third order benefit and costs right either. They're not even really trying. It's, it's, it's too deep and difficult a problem to figure out what's going to happen three steps down the causal chain. You're, if you read a typical CBA that, 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 you know, the Environmental Protection Agency or some other agency does, you're basically just going to see sort of first order one causal step, costs and benefits. And so you're right, it's just an approximation. And it's possible that in some cases... Uh, those second and third order benefits costs would actually be large enough to matter. You know, I think in a lot of cases, they're just going to be rounding error to the first order cost benefits. In other cases, they might be bigger. You're absolutely right that this is just going to be an approximation. I guess the proper question, as you said, is compared to what? So would you rather have these numbers, imperfect though they are, or would you rather have people just uh, hand wave and flip coins? And I think it seems totally uncontroversial to me that you'd rather have some numbers, um, even if your numbers aren't perfect. And even if that's not right, if you're going to say, you know, I'm in favor of hand-waving, you'd at least want the person doing the hand-waving to know what they're waving their hands about and to understand (laughs) what what are the things on both sides of the equation. 
And so, you know, that's that's the problem with the with the with, with what the PTO does here. You know, I would never criticize the PTO for having failed to consider the second and third and fourth order benefits of patents. You know, what if we grant fewer patents and so it diminishes our technological superiority and then we, you know, lose a war in Europe or something like that a hundred years from now. You know, that's crazy. The agency can never mm-hmm. get into that kind of thing. Um, it's the first order cost of benefits that it should be trying to concern itself with. It just doesn't know what those are, at least it didn't on paper. Part of me is just wondering whether this is an area where those second and third order effects are actually the, the larger share. You know, aren't patent thickets in a way kind of a second order effect? And yeah, yeah and, and then I'm thinking even beyond that of market because these are these, you know, these are property rights that structure whole markets, right? Instead of kind of tax particular activities within a market, like maybe some environmental regulations might do. And, and so, you know, I'm thinking, you know, everything from structuring like small, uh, smallish patent trolls to bigger patent trolls to small time inventors who hope to hit it big to huge like consortiums of patent holders, uh, which are basically just defensively holding a bunch of patents uh, on behalf of, of, you know, kind of multilateral among companies to defensive holdings of patents by large companies. You know what I mean? I, I you know I, I don't know if any of these are are true first order effects. Like, because one one of the effects of the system generally is that a company like say I don't know Google or Apple or Microsoft buy large shares of patents, which don't increase the state of that company's knowledge or ability to operate at all, other than operate as a defense against uh, kind of a mutually assured destruction type defense against other. Uh, uh, um, I I don't remember the words, but other other uses of patents by other companies. Right. Well. So I think you're, if, you're, if what you're saying is that you know none of these are just sort of one causal step from granting the patent, that's probably true. I mean, even the dynamic innovation effects are not just one causal step from granting the patent. You know, what I tried to do in the paper is catalog just what people think are the largest effects in terms of economic impact. And you know, you're right. I think you mentioned uh, Paul Heald's work earlier about patents facilitating transactions. That might be right. I, I think if you surveyed a hundred patent experts. 100 out of 100 would say that the primary effect of patents, you know, is um, is the dynamic innovation incentive and that those sorts of effects, while potentially important, are going to be secondary. So I'm just trying to name the, the major yeah, effects. Yeah, yeah. Or at um, least, but but it's really that you're really trying to name, I think, the major hypothesized effects, right? Because the people right. who support patents say, you know, whatever other purposes it has, uh, the, the patent system has, one of them has to be to encourage people to make new inventions. Like that's the if if it doesn't achieve that purpose, then, you know, the rest of it, you know, unless it's much bigger than we thought is, is not justification for the anti-competitive effects of these, of these monopolies. But I, if you surveyed a hundred people, like in software, would they say that there really is any dynamic innovation effect in software from patents? Um, well, I mean, some of them would, but certainly not a hundred out of a hundred by no means. I mean, look, we have very good evidence that patents encourage innovation in some sectors like pharmaceuticals. We have, very little evidence that patents encourage innovation in other sectors like software. I guess what I would say is just, let's suppose that we could prove that patents, in fact, did not encourage innovation in the software field. And now now the question is, could we nonetheless justify having patents in software on the grounds that they facilitate transactions or serve some other beneficial purpose? My guess is that essentially no one would think that patents are justifiable um, on these other sorts of grounds. And so really, if they're not encouraging innovation, if they're having no effect on innovation at all, then it's going to be really hard to justify patents because that is the major benefit. Yeah. So I've kind of taken the long way around here. So forgive me, but like, so let, let's bring that back then, you know, suppose we've made that conclusion in software 
Suppose mm-hmm. we just made that conclusion, right? That there, right. that the dynamic effect is really very low, uh, and and is lower than the administration cost and the thicket cost and all those other things. And I'm the and I'm the patent and trademark office uh, official in charge of kind of writing these regulations. Do I set the patent fee in software at like a billion dollars? So I think that the patent and trademark office does not have the authority to set particular fees for particular technology areas. Um, that's one authority that is specifically foreclosed by statute. So oh, the statute actually that. rules it out. Okay, statute rules that out. So they, okay. they can't do that. Even though I actually, I, I have written that I think that they should be allowed to do that, and that there should be sorts of different fees, different rules uh, based on technology area. So, but I think that the patent and trademark office, under current law, they can't take that step. However, they could sort of say, "Look, we are dubious as to the beneficial effects of software patents, and we suspect that." a lot of the marginal patents that are getting filed now are software patents. And so we think we can raise the fees and discourage a lot of those marginal patents without really diminishing innovation at all. So that would be that would be a way of you know using what they know about a particular technology area and about how that technology area fits into the greater patent ecosystem to make a decision about where the fees overall should be. So in other words, what's the connection between price sensitivity and the merit, the underlying merit of the of the patent on this dynamic innovation story. If it turned right. out that it, it's easier to deter to deter people with low value patents, then by raising that fee, you know, all the pharma guys are still in the game. The software people have gone somewhere else. Precisely. And it's worth noting, I mean, the PTO provides calculations in the regulation of how many patents will be filed if the application fees are set at various levels, they have numbers. And so they obviously have some picture about which patents are going to be filed and which ones are not if they set application fees at certain points. Now, they don't provide industry by industry breakdowns of that, probably because they know they can't regulate on an industry by industry basis, but they probably have that information somewhere. They probably have a guess. If we raise our patent fees by $1,000, we're gonna get X fewer software patents and Y fewer chemistry patents, and Z fewer pharma patents. And then they could use that to actually make some policy decisions. So, you, so you're saying you think they have the information, but that maybe they haven't shared it or processed it to that point because they, they see that it, they're inhibited by the, the prohibition on setting different fees for different art areas? Right. I mean, I, we know that they, I know, in the regulation, they report numbers on how many patents they'll actually get with fees at various levels. To arrive at that number, and they know how many patents they're getting in various art levels, uh, various art areas as it is. Right. And so to have arrived at those final numbers, they probably have estimates area by area of the number of patents they'll receive. Or if they don't have estimates, they could probably calculate them relatively easily. Um, but they don't report any of those numbers because they probably don't think it's relevant. Huh. Uh, they don't have they don't have the authority to set differential fees for different technology areas. So why bother talking about different technology areas? So, so one way another thing i was wondering about in the as i was reading the paper is one way to look at this is to say you know patent office you didn't do a very good job here's how you could do a better job like why isn't oira in for some criticism here like why did they let the pto get away with this this is, this is the white house office that is kind of centralizes a review of agency regulations right. and reviews these cost benefit analyses for major regulations and and for major regulations it kind of has to sign off on them. Yeah, and let right. me just say by by way of preface that that you could a person could could look at the last 30 years, 35 years uh of uh, uh, since the the Reagan executive order in 81 and say, look, uh there are the EPA and some other actors have gotten very adept at doing this, some other agencies not so much. Uh, and so there's actually some real expertise 
uh, within the executive branch, um, and and maybe you could say, ah, and that expertise has gotten concentrated in OMB and OIRA, at least at the 10,000-foot level. So even if we're going to let agencies do this stuff on their own, I mean, maybe you could make the argument that CBA ought to be done by an office that is designed to do CBA, and that gets deputized out to different agencies whenever they're doing a major rulemaking. But if you leave it in the individual agency, you could say, look, when it gets to OIRA, we're we're the experts. We're really going to bear down on this and and make it good, right? And they don't appear to have done that here. Why not? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, and I think that OIRA's lack of action is a complete mystery here. So one possibility is they just didn't think this was very important. They figured this is just small potatoes. It doesn't really matter. And there's no use fighting over it. Another possibility is that they didn't know the first thing about how to calculate patent costs and benefits, or maybe even not know very much about patents in general, because this is the first PTO regulation they've ever reviewed. And so they thought that the PTO was doing as good as good a job as anyone could do, and they didn't know what to say in response to the PTO. And, you know, a third possibility is it's all sort of political, um, you know, just as the PTO wants to have a very patent applicant friendly regulation. So too, the administration wants to allow the PTO to promulgate a very patent friendly rule. And so, you know, if you think about uh, like a typical EPA regulation, you've got powerful interests pushing back against that regulation and saying, no, it's going to be too costly. And so part of OIRA's function is to make sure that if EPA is promulgating a reg, it's really necessary. And maybe here, there's no one who wants to push back against the patent and trademark office's regulation. So OIRA feels like, it's not really their job to do much and they don't have any skin in the game and they're not interested in sticking their neck out if nobody else really cares about it that much. So th- these are just possibilities. I don't know the answer. I would love to know the answer. Well, the third one strikes me as as implausible or, or at least harder to explain in the context where, you know, another thing going on is that uh, it, certainly recently uh, it, is the administration and the Council of Economic Advisors and blah, 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 all, all this stuff about uh, improving the competitiveness of the economy and looking at things like non-compete agreements um, and trade secrets and other things they've been issuing white papers about, all of which would suggest uh, and, and activities in professional licensing and stuff like that, all of which would suggest they would very much want to push back on a sort of uh, somewhat knee-jerk pro patenty you know, what's good for patent holders is good for America, sort of superficial analysis. So so three strikes me as implausible on that ground. I mean, it, it, that could very well be, you know, again, it's hard to know uh, which actors have the ear of the Patent and Trademark Office, you know, at any given moment for any of these sorts of behaviors. So it, it could be that they're on, on those sorts of competitive mes- competitiveness issues, they're hearing a lot from certain parties. And on this regulation, they're hearing a lot from other parties and the people who are you know, worried about competitiveness just weren't weighing in on it. Yeah, so but I, I don't know. I was referring to OIRA. Like, I understand why yeah. the patent office wouldn't necessarily be getting that message, but that but that the people at OMB would be getting it. Right. And so they would translate that. They would push back against the patent office and say, guys, come on. I mean, <laughs> you, get, you can't have a fee setting rulemaking that says, you know, more patents is more good. Like, that's just too superficial an analysis. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't think that the administration, you know, when I say the patent office, I really mean the administration writ large, because if OIRA is going to push back on this, you know, they're going to need the support of someone in the central administration, you know, the chief of staff or something. You know, I don't know. I don't think the administration has been 
sort of strenuously anti-patent or strenuously pro-patent. I, I agree that they've sounded uh, relatively balanced at various different moments. So I don't really know um, what their view was about this regulation or whether they even necessarily saw it as uh, as strongly pro-patent. They might have looked at these numbers and thought, oh, I see, well, the, the costs are going up. So um, that means that the Patent and Trademark Office is not being overly solicitous of patent applicants. So that all seems fine. Uh, they might not have understood the full cost and benefits either. In your ideal world, so, so let's suppose, you know, Jonathan Macer is now running the PTO and it's going to have to do this CBA. Uh, I, I imagine that's a prospect that you you don't necessarily relish. Um, <laughs> is it is it even possible, even the approximation that we're talking I know you've talked about a couple kind of rules of thumb um, that, you know, that it may be low value patents that that can't afford the fee. And so maybe we'll weed out a lot of those. Although, you know, I had thought the whole problem here, right, was the divergence between private value of a patent and public value of a patent. So there can be patents of enormous private value, which are actually quite harmful because of their innovation retardation that they that they cause. So it seems to me that that studies of the the incentive effects of patents and the patent thicket effect on the cost side, even within a particular domain, that those are probably really hard to do. Right. These are hard economic studies to do this properly. We would at least need some approximation we had confidence in across the entire economy. Right. How would you do it? Well, I mean, I try to outline that a little bit in the yeah. paper. So I think you're right. These are hard studies to conduct. We have some empirical evidence on the effects of patents uh, in various industries at various times. Um, we have some strong theoretical reasons to think that higher fees are going to be beneficial up front and higher maintenance fees are going to be beneficial as well. And I think it would have been possible, you know, I didn't, I didn't lay it all on the paper because that would be another 40 pages that surely no one wants to read. Uh, but I think it's possible. I think it would have been possible to, uh, to put together at least a pretty decent kind of back of the envelope calculation. And I actually do a little bit of a, you back do a little bit of that calculation yeah. in the paper and sort of yeah. say, okay, well, at least I think there's a plausible case that they should be, raising the fees in, in this, that, or this, that, or the other context. You know, of course, they're not going to get anything close to absolute certainty or true precision, but they could have done something uh, a little bit better that would have given them a little more confidence. And I think if they had done that, they probably would have arrived at the conclusion that they should have higher fees, uh, higher application fees, and probably higher maintenance fees, which they originally did have in the first iteration of the regulation before they were convinced by uh, by stakeholders, I think by you know patent applicants to scale things back. Now, of course, you can do the cost-benefit analysis, and in the end, uh, if the politics is pushing one way and the cost-benefit analysis is pushing another way, uh, the politics are going to win. So who knows how <laughs> it's actually going to end up looking. Well, that's one of the virtues of cost-benefit analysis, right, is that because of its objectivity, it can be at least somewhat more immune from politics than other forms of regulation, which rely on like narrative or rhetoric to justify a particular approach, right? right? I mean, there are plenty of regulations that have been issued where the cost-benefit analysis doesn't look so good or whether there, when there was some alternative that looked better but was not chosen because of politics. And so, you know, regulations will get issued. There's no law that says that you have to issue the regulation that looks best under the cost-benefit test. Regulations get issued all the time that look less good than potential alternatives under cost-benefit tests. But at least, I would say, at least in that case, you're laying bare your decisions. You can't hide behind some false front. You have to say, look, this is what the cost-benefit analysis said. 
we're doing something different. Here are the reasons we're doing something different. So at minimum, the public can evaluate it. The public can decide whether this was legitimate action or not. Um, that's at least better than uh, than, than not providing the, the numbers in the first place. Yeah, and that's the kind of justification I've seen your, your colleague Eric Posner give before. I think in I think it was his letter to uh, in response to the Obama call for comments on on what to do with the you know, basically the Reagan era executive order and whether to keep that going as, as Clinton did. And and part of the argument is and a major part of the argument is transparency. It's 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 rationality, but it's also transparency. Uh, and you can be trans because, you know, it's easy to identify you haven't considered this cost, you haven't considered this benefit or you've mismeasured this cost or you've mis- mismeasured. That's a lot easier right. than, you know, uh, you know, a, a 90 page like narrative rhetoric treatment of, quote unquote, the right thing to do where the response would be an 80-page dissent from that, right? (laughs) Right. I mean, there are are plenty of examples where Congress will pass a law that says you must promulgate a regulation that does X, Y, and Z. Right. And the agency will promulgate the regulation and it will conduct a cost-benefit analysis and it will find that the costs, you know, vastly outweigh the benefits. Eric and I wrote about one of these in a recent paper. Um, It was about uh, it was an FAA regulation about flight safety, and the benefits were going to be $10 million a year, and the costs were going to be $110 million a year. And the agency does the cost-benefit analysis, arrives at the numbers, and says, Congress has required us to promulgate this reg anyway, so that's what we're going to do. And that, to me, is exactly appropriate. At minimum, they're telling Congress, maybe you should not pass laws like that in the future. Or they're telling the American public, maybe you should not be eager for Congress to pass mm-hmm. laws like so I think that's a perfectly valuable function, even if you're going to do something else. But here, um, you know, who knows if they had actually seen the cost benefit numbers, they might have been persuaded to take some other sort of action. Now, in a way, the more intriguing, like we've been talking a lot about the part of your paper that's about the fee setting regulation. And in a way, uh, maybe the more intriguing example is the second one you talk about, about the the agency's adoption of various uh, standards and rules for conducting these post-grant review proceedings, mm-hmm. and um, and the one that the Supreme Court uh, held yesterday was uh, appropriate under the Act, using administrative law principles largely. Right. Um, and uh, it, can you say more about like like lay out that what that standard was and and why that should have been subjected to a cost benefit analysis? Because I because I think. Most people, that wouldn't be the first thing they would think of when they saw that rule was like, well, I hope they figured out the CBA on that because, you know, it looks more like a rule of civil procedure or a, a, a rule of, a, of, of statutory construction or something like that. Right. So, yeah, I think rule of statutory construction is exactly the way to describe it. So I'll, I'll just sort of take a step back to kind of lay out the groundwork here. So the, the America Invents Act in 2011 creates these new administrative procedures within the Patent and Trademark Office, basically for challenging patents that have already been granted, inter partes review, post-grant review, and this special thing called covered business method patent review. And it says to the PTO, okay, you make up the rules to govern these procedures. And so they make up a lot of rules about filing deadlines and brief lengths and all this sort of thing. And those all get promulgated in a long regulation. And then they have one rule, which is not really a procedural rule, but is actually a substantive rule, which is, you know, if you're going to evaluate whether a patent claim is in fact valid, you first have to interpret the claim and figure out what it means. And when courts do that, they just sort of try to arrive at the best interpretation. It's like doing statutory interpretation, except you've got a claim term in a patent here. And so they look at the patent itself. They look at the language of the claim. They look at the surrounding language. They look at um, the technical specification of the patent. They look at treatises. They take expert testimony or whatever. They arrive at you know, the, the best interpretation they can. 
patent and trademark office decides we're not going to use the sort of best interpretation. We're going to use the broadest reasonable interpretation. So in other words, we're going to make this patent claim as broad, uh, as all-encompassing as it would be reasonable to do given the language. And of course, um, as any person in patent law can tell you, the broader the patent claim, the more likely it is to be invalidated because it just increases the chances that you're trying to claim something you didn't really invent or you're trying to claim something that somebody invented before you uh, so your claim isn't new or or, uh, or any number of other sorts of problems. Yeah, so, so the, the, the broader it is, the more likely someone's going to find an article that someone wrote before that exactly. discussed the yeah. thing, yeah. Or, or, or the broader, you know, you're going to be claiming all types of electric cars because right. your claims interpreted so broadly when you only invented one type of electric car. And that's not allowed either. That's another good way to get your claim invalidated. And so this is almost surely having a very significant effect on these proceedings. And in fact, there are decisions in which uh, federal circuit judges will say, you know, if I were using the normal claim interpretation rules where you pick the best interpretation, I would think that the claim is valid. But because we're using the broadest reasonable interpretation, because that's what the patent office has decided to do, I think the claim is invalid. So it's it's outcome dispositive in at least uh, some number of important cases. I, I, I saw in the in the case and in your paper that they use this broadest reasonable interpretation. That yes. word that word reasonable is that reasonable in light of the text according to ordinary readings or is it or does it include an analysis of of the validity right so it's just yeah. it's just most reasonable in in terms of the text not in terms of validity that's exactly the issue so oh, the text of the whole patent document not not just that claim yeah well, correct obviously this only comes into play if there are multiple possible interpretations right exactly i mean so it's if you're trying to patent, if your patent claim says car, you know, that might be interpreted reasonably to include a wide variety of cars. It's not going to be interpreted to include an airplane, of course. Right. Or if it said brush, uh, a hairbrush, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, you've got hair on the top of your head, but you also have eyebrows. Uh, you and I also both have facial beards. That that's it, We could be talking about a brush for all the different kinds of hair on our head, right? So depending on the breadth of the brush and what you might look at, there's actually a federal circuit case about the prior art for brushes for hair on the head, mm-hmm. uh, it, which is why I thought of the example. So it, it, there, the, the, you're right. There has to be more than one reasonable one for you to be talking about whether to pick the broader or the narrower. Right. But uh, there are plenty of instances where that would be a real possibility, where there could be yes. multiple interpretations. Um, and so you'd want to pick the one that was broader. Right. At least in initial examination, this is, seems like a, pr- a, a quite well settled But one, one ground for considering an interpretation unreasonable is not that that interpretation would lead to invalidity. Not really. You know, they're, they're not supposed to be sort of peeking ahead to the outcome of invalidity when they're picking this interpretation. Yeah. There is this sort of, I mean, there are a lot of contradictory canons yeah, about yeah. all these things. There is sort of this contradictory <laughs> I have that in mind. Yeah. that says, uh, well, you know, claims are not supposed to be interpreted so as to make them obviously invalid. But for the, but that claim seems to be subordinated to the more general practice of interpret the claim. That's right. That canon seems to be subordinated to the more general practice of uh, interpreting the claim first and not peeking ahead to what invalid to what the invalidity outcome will be. And when you're talking about examination of the patent at the patent office, uh, it, certainly in the initial examination stage. Um, there is an iterative thing going on where where they where you can say, "Hey, look, uh, it's it's not patentable uh, based on this prior art. Why don't you write it again?" 
and, and write it more narrowly, right? So, or write it more clearly so that we understand what it is you're trying to claim. And, and so, of course, there you wouldn't want to say avoid interpretations that would make it invalid. One of the things you're, one of the very things you're trying to accomplish is getting more information injected into the patent document and the patent process so that you ensure its validity. So it would be right. counterproductive to assume, you know, avoid all interpretations that would make it invalid. Uh, we're trying to make sure we're trying to bulletproof it in a way in the yes. examination process. So I, I think that's why in that stage, taking the broader view, and this comes up in the Supreme Court case because we're talking about post-grant review. So there isn't that same malleability and back and forth in a post-grant proceeding uh, as in the initial proceeding. So somebody's invented something. They apply for a patent. I'm someone who wants to do something which might infringe that patent, depending on how it's read. One of the things that I can do instead of just defend an infringement suit is to, is to try to get the patent invalidated under this procedure. I do that. I, I file, a, I forget what you call it, but you file something with the patent office which invokes this procedure. The patent office then, uh, because of this regulation, which we'll talk about in a second, uh, reviews, that, reviews the, that patent according to that interpretation, its broadest reasonable interpretation, and says, yep. you know what, if we, if we take the interpretation, which is the broadest reasonable, we find that there is prior art, and, and this, is an, this is basically an obvious extension of the prior art on, say, speedometers. And then we get to the Supreme Court, uh, which reviews the use of that standard, whether the agency had the authority to, to use that standard and defers to the agency in, in using Chevron deference and deciding that, yeah, that, that's a, a reasonable interpretation of the authority they've been granted, even though it's a different standard than what the courts use. And is that a reasonable um, summary of, what, of where we are? Yes, absolutely. So why should there have been a cost-benefit analysis of that rule as a major rule? So the only question when you're deciding whether to do a cost-benefit analysis, the only question is, will the rule have an impact on the economy of $100 million or more? And all you have to do is look at, will this regulation you know, move money around to the tune of $100 million plus? So wealth, tran wealth transfers are included, pure wealth transfers are included in the calculation. Exactly. So yeah, right. A pure wealth transfer is, of course, as, you're, as I'm sure you're alluding to, is neither a cost nor a benefit. So it wouldn't be part of a cost-benefit analysis, but for purposes of figuring out whether the regulation has an impact of $100 million or more and triggers the need to do a cost-benefit analysis, yes, they're included. Okay. So if there was just a regulation that said that I had to give you $150 million, the agency should do a cost-benefit analysis of that, even though that's just a pure transfer. But of course, I mean, that isn't even really an issue here because these aren't transfers. Uh, so th the point is that the choice of the broadest reasonable interpretation standard instead of doing what the courts do and just trying to get the best standard, that's going to lead to a significant number of patents being invalidated that wouldn't otherwise be invalidated. And so, you know, once those patents add up to more than $100 million, you have a significant rule. You've got an economically significant rule that the agency should have looked into. And, you know, I think it, there's, I'm sure that there's going to be something that strikes you as incongruous about trying to do a cost benefit analysis of you know, a, a statutory interpretation standard, broadest reasonable interpretation versus just pick the best interpretation. But I mean, I think the point is that the cost benefit analysis in whatever form the agency did it, whether they were putting numbers on things or just making guesses or back of the envelope or whatever, it would have at least forced them to think about whether it is on the whole good or bad to use the broadest reasonable interpretation standard as opposed to any other standard. And the agency does not appear to have really thought through that question at all. Um, and so, you know, the, not only do they don't do a cost benefit analysis, they don't really do any kind of normative analysis about whether this is the right move.
and, and a CBA in this for this regulation, I guess it would be how many more people do we estimate would bring such proceedings in light of the standard? How many of them would be successful? What kinds of patents would be invalidated? What is the effect, uh, the dynamic incentive effect, which will be caused by the invalidation of that layer of patents? And, uh, and more, right? And how much will these proceedings cost to, um, uh, cost to adjudicate, et cetera? Exactly. I mean, here's, here's an analogy. So, you know, the only costs and benefits that the age, or the, sorry, the only economic impact that the agency counted for purposes of this rule change was just the costs of filing or defending these sorts of administrative petitions. So, you know, you have to pay the filing fee and then you have to pay your attorney and so forth. Those are the only costs and benefits the agency counted. It, it's the same as imagine if you had a court, a state Supreme Court that was considering changing the tort rule from a negligence rule to a recklessness rule. So you're only liable in tort if you're reckless. And the court's trying to think about whether that's a good idea or not. Should we make this change? And the only issue that the court thinks about is how many more tort lawsuits will be brought under a negligence standard than a recklessness standard? How much money we'd save by changing the standard from negligence to recklessness without thinking about you know, how much uh, more harm people might cause or whether people will be compensated for their injuries or any of the other things that will change when you change the legal standard. So it's, it's just a, it was a completely myopic uh, approach by the Patent and Trademark Office. Can, it, can we get back to this? I, this is a small point, but it also comes up in the, in, in your, um, in the initial example of, of fees. And that's the idea that transfers are not, are not costs or, or benefits. So, so in this case, you know, so if the agency concluded that maybe having a broader standard would, in, would encourage more litigation, and so one cost would be the cost of attorneys to bring these things, or the cost of, of filing, the cost of paying ALJs, or whatever else they might, they might do, why are those costs? Why is paying an attorney a cost yeah. as opposed to just a transfer to the attorney? Yeah, I mean, because I imagine so, right? So, so if you pay the attorney, right, then the money yeah. goes to the attorney, and then the and then the that money will be used by the attorney to purchase goods and services and see movies and all kinds of other things. Whereas if uh, right. if the, if the person who kept the money, you know, the the patentee or the the person being sued, uh, then, then they would have had that choice, right? So, really, what's going on is is the regulation is is slightly altering which preferences are satisfied and to what degree. I've been trying to convince people that having to pay your lawyer is not a cost at all. It's just a benefit to the rest of the economy. People spend money on movies uh, with, you know, not a lot of success. So you're, look, you're a Keynesian. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, uh, I think, look, I think that's a really kind of deep and important question, which I don't know the answer to. And I'm not sure anyone knows the answer to. I had conversations with economists years ago about exactly that issue and there was not really any satisfactory answer. I mean, I think part of the answer is just these things have already been always been treated as costs. But I'll, I'll give you, you know, the answer as best as I understand it, with full knowledge that this is not going to be completely satisfying to you or to me. And that is, it's not that the money paid to the lawyer is a cost. It's that the lawyer spending her time working on the case is an economic cost. So yep. you've got some lawyer there. That lawyer could be doing any number of economically productive things. That lawyer has 2,000 hours a year to do something wonderful with all of her talents and intelligence. And the thing that she is choosing to do is work on your case. And so she's burning all of her available time and energy and talent on your case. That's a cost. You're eating up all these resources of human capital. We just choose to measure the amount of resources you've consumed by the amount of money you paid to the lawyer. So even though the payment is just a transfer, it's the lawyer's effort that's the actual cost. You see, I'm wondering if this is part of what's behind the critique of CBA as inherently neoliberal, because really what's going on is that 
when when we when we, when we make a rule that that incentivizes lawyer effort, uh, we're making a collective decision to spend resources on lawyering, and that's a cost because if we hadn't made that decision, those resources would have been spent in a way dictated by the market. And so, what's really going on are, is that costs are those things that are basically opportunities foregone because of collective decision making. And so, CBA. And I, I'm just thinking out loud here. So this is the first time I'm really thinking about this. So, but uh, so this could be you know, all nonsense. But that that basically what CBA does is to privilege market decisions over uh, collective directions of resources. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's fair. Um, you know, I and I, I guess I, I wouldn't say. I guess I wouldn't say that CBA says that market decisions are always better. I guess I, I think CBA is just saying. If you want to, t- you've got a bunch of people out there who could be doing valuable labor somewhere else in the economy where the market is demanding it, and now you're making a collective decision to tie up their efforts in doing something that you've chosen, and that could be a good idea or it could be a bad idea. But if it's a good idea, you better be able to show that they're actually producing something really valuable with all that time and energy they're spending. Um, and so, before you make the decision to tie them up, let's let's see some evidence that. Um, yeah, it, it's, why, it's, it's, isn't it's, why isn't its value underwritten by the fact that the that people are insisting that it occur? I mean, that's one way to think about its value. Everyone got together and decided this should happen. Um, why does well, it need to be underwritten in an additional way? Underwritten by, by and part of right? look, I, I, I want mean, to be clear so on this theory yeah, yeah, that yeah, we're exploring. Yeah. It's sort of like the way you define whether something is a cost is you put it on a flashcard, show yeah. it to Charles and Edward Koch, and see if it gives them a sack. <laughs> I, I, right? I mean, that's the, that's what you just defined as a cost. I'm taking that as a given. Wait, can wait, I be clear wait, about something? Yeah, so I'm no, actually I'm actually a CBA proponent. No, and, I was and, saying and you to Christian, not you, Jonathan. I know you would never get a CBA proponent. I might, but but I. I, I do think it's really curious, right? That um, I do too. That w- the way you phrase it is kind of how I was thinking about it, Joe. Right? That that a cost is something which is not underwritten by a market decision, right? Yeah, it gives John Galt a sad, uh, right? That's I, that's I, the way to that's the Christian Turner it, definition that, of well, cost in our current conversation. <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, look, yeah. I think look, if we were doing cost benefit analysis of business decisions, we'd do it the same way. You know, if if Apple decides to go out and hire. A thousand additional engineers, we would say, yeah, okay, when you take those engineers and you pay the money and you sit them down in a building and have them work for you, that's a cost. You're consuming the time and effort and energy of those engineers. And we would hope that in the end of uh, and at the end of all of that, Apple, those engineers would produce a benefit for Apple and for the country uh, that's greater than the cost. So I don't think we would not call it a cost just because there was a market decision involved. It's just that we don't do cost benefit analysis of Apple's business decisions, you know, we meaning like the government or OIRA or scholars, because, you know, number one, that's not really our business. And number two, we think Apple has the right incentives to get it right for themselves. But I do think we would call that a cost, even though it's a market-based transaction. I don't think we would not call it a cost. I agree with you that that we would call it a cost, although, and I'm not an economist, so I'm, I'm on some thin ice here, but it does seem like in Apple's context, they can think meaningfully about opportunity cost. What else could we do with these resources? We could leave them sit in a bank account. We could hire someone other than engineers. We could do something else, right? Um, and I don't have this. I don't have the feeling that the same kind of opportunity cost discipline is being used in the CBA discussion. Am I wrong about that? Well, I think that's exactly the purpose of CBA is to think about those opportunity costs. So 
when, you know, for, let's just take the patent office hiring examiners as an example. So the patent office, as a result of this regulation, is going to hire a whole uh, bunch of additional examiners to try to reduce the patent backlog. And the, the PTO, those examiners, um, you know, are free to the PTO so long as it can raise the necessary fees to pay for them. And so here it's taking several hundred people who have technical degrees and could presumably be doing innovation of their own somewhere and taking them off the street and giving them jobs at the Patent and Trademark Office. So what's the cost of that decision? Well, the cost is uh, the expended labor and effort and talent of those hundreds of examiners who are now working at the PTO instead of doing something else. And the way to make the PTO... Um, take that opportunity cost into account is to force them to do a cost-benefit analysis and show that they're going to produce social benefits that exceed the cost of having all the examiners uh, rush through all these patents. And the measure of the cost is the salary it takes to induce them to come in and do that job instead of doing something else. The use of the salary, it involves kind of a big assumption and then just a shortcut. And the biggest the big assumption is that people are paid roughly equivalent to their marginal productivity. So if you are worth $100,000, you are being paid about 100000 And then the shortcut is just, we don't have another good way of really measuring exactly what everyone's contribution is, what their productivity is. So the salary provides kind of a rough and ready benchmark, and it's the best we can do. Yeah, I mean, it's a shortcut for what is the value of the world when these people are patent examiners, and what's the value of the world when they are otherwise available to the labor market? And, yeah, exactly. and you could and you could give the same answer to as uh, the way we got diverted on the, or not diverted the way we got turned to this issue, Christian, was when you were asking about the why is paying the lawyer a cost, right? And and I think it's the same answer, right? The 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 to induce the lawyer to do this rather than do something that the lawyer chooses him or herself in a in a an imaginary world. This is what you have to pay them. Right? Well, it's where you, yeah, I mean, rather than what they would do without this opportunity. If their opportunity set were one fewer. <laughs> right. I mean, that lawyer, instead of filing your IPR, you know, that lawyer could be representing a pro bono criminal defendant or the lawyer could be on Wall Street trying to you know, finish a deal or that lawyer could be, uh, you know, not having and could not have gone to law school in the first place. Or that person could be an artist. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Could be doing something else. And so you have to figure out, you know, how much of this person's talent are we spending on this IPR? And the answer is roughly you know, the amount of money that you end up paying that person to convince them to do the IPR as opposed to something else. I feel like there's something else I wanted to ask about that because this is bothering me. <laughs> and I can, the, the, well, uh, my guess is we could we could spend many hours uh, talking about things about CBA that are that are conceptually uh, challenging. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's a very deep and rich set of questions. Well, so, running through it is right. that is is the you know why this method of approximation? Um, you know, how do you solve the baseline problem? How do you solve the problem that when you do something which looks like a like a white lab coat kind of activity right how, how do you solve the problem of other people thinking they can't critique it because they don't have the expertise so there's this right. problem of faux experts so there are all these all these problems on the other hand like i said earlier i'm a proponent of cba mm-hmm. almost all the time although decidedly a critic of a fake cba right um, but but <laughs> yes. a, a proponent of, of cba yeah. precisely for the transparency reasons and the you know, and the right, like getting people to lay their cards on the table about what yeah. they think costs and benefits are. I'm, I'm decidedly less like sanguine about about like having an uncontroversial way to say what is a cost and what is a benefit, because in addition to the baseline problem, there's this other problem we were talking about how you measure. Yeah. You know, anyway, yeah. I mean, for me, the the thing that's the most intriguing about it and positive about it is the the sort of anti capture toehold 
as I would describe it, that Mm -hmm. when you set up this scenario for analyzing things, you give people a toehold in the conversation, even when they aren't the principal either beneficiary of the item or the primary burden bearer of the item, is that you crack it open by creating this uh, conceptual space where other people can interject things that might be important. Well, I mean, you are imposing, and this is this thing I'm working on now, right? You, you're you basically imposing a kind of currency within the market, which is producing decisions, right? So if the if you think of the agency as a market where you have various forces who are spending power, which you can identify with a particular kind of currency, uh, then by requiring cost-benefit analysis, you are kind of suggesting and constraining what kind of currency will work, right? It's no longer enough that you've been here for 30 years and you have a vague sense that this is the way we should do it or you're friends with this senator. And the, Although, as Jonathan pointed out earlier, there are plenty of instances where CBA is going on and there may have been two or three perfectly reasonable forms of CBA that could have occurred, but the one that was chosen was chosen because of political connections. So it's not a, right. it's not a perfect thing. But, but nothing is perfect. Yeah. So exactly as Joe said, I think we could have you know, a, a really long, completely separate conversation about all these sorts of conceptual issues with CBA. Um, you know, I guess, I, I guess I would just say, you know, I think a lot of people sort of, they look at CBA, they see all the flaws, and the, the response is, like, let's just throw the whole thing out the window. Um, and that just strikes me as crazy. Uh, you know, I, you'd much rather have something, much rather have some numbers, even if they're not perfect, so long as we can actually try to start to think about what they're telling us and understand the limitations and critique the limitations and have a whole, at least a, a real debate about that, as opposed to just arguing over total abstractions that we, that nobody can get a, a, a nobody can really get any sort of purchase on. So, you know, I, I think I, it's funny. I sort of agree with all the criticisms of CBA, and I've written a lot of them myself. And then I just sort of disagree with the overall conclusion that we should get rid of it. Um, you know, despite despite all those criticisms, and you know, and I think that what goes on here with the Patent Trademark Office is a perfect example where it could have been really valuable if they had actually, even if they hadn't come up with good numbers, really solid, rigorous numbers, if they had just, you know, understood what they were doing and tried to put some reasonable guesses on things, it would have given us um, some space to discuss whether the rule made sense or not. But you can't do that on the basis of the cost benefit analysis that the agency actually did. Yeah, and with all the debate about patent law, a lot of which we had on the show. What what a perfect place and venue for gathering that information and advancing the state of knowledge, uh, of social knowledge about the incentive effects of patents, right? They, they, they're the place that could do it or at least could call for it, at least could, you know, kind of in a systematic way lay out the gaps in our knowledge. Um, about, I agree. Yeah, I agree. And and, and if, the, if the agency made it clear that they were interested in doing these types of analyses, that would probably cause academics to want to do a lot more research on it. I mean – you know, this type of research is not very expensive. The agency could have, you know, provided modest grants to fund it. It would have been a signal to everyone that the agency is interested in this stuff and that you can actually have an impact on policy. Uh, And people would have probably risen to the challenge, but none of that happened. And uh, I guess uh, the last thing I'll ask you is, what do you think of the Supreme Court decision? So it's got, it's got these two parts to it, right? The, the, the first part is that um, it's about this appeals, right? The, the, the agency can make a final decision about um, an un- unappealable decision about whether to right. hear one of these things. We don't need to talk about that unless you're particularly interested. But the other part is, is, is about the standard that we, we started talking about and whether right. the agency was entitled to, to choose that standard. And as a matter of kind of Chevron deference, they, the, the Breyer writing says this is a reasonable interpretation of the agency's authority, and it's fine if it's different than the courts of appeals. Uh, yeah. What do you think? I, I, guess, I guess I would say I, I agree with you know, the first half of that and screw with the second. I, I would say it's probably right on the law. Um, 
I think the agency's pro- uh, the court is probably right that Chevron deference ought to apply here, and the agency's decision was reasonable. Um, but I don't think it's especially good policy. Uh, I think it, it it creates opportunities for gamesmanship when you have a different standard in the PTO than you do in the courts. Because what happens now is um, if you want to challenge a patent, if you're you know being uh, sued, you can go to the PTO and argue for a really broad interpretation. Uh, of the patent and try to get it validated um, in a in a post grant proceeding, and then you could turn around in federal litigation and argue for a really narrow interpretation and argue that you're just not infringing it because the claim should be read so narrowly. And I just don't think it makes sense to give people challenging patents two sort of bites at the apple, two chances to argue mutually contradictory things. But, well, what if you think the patents are already out of control and we need more opportunities to invalidate them? But there's a smaller scale. I think there's a smaller scale answer than that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if if that's opportunism, and it may be, uh, it seems to me it's it's a mirror image of the patentee's opportunism to argue narrower or broader constructions um, on its own behalf, given whatever malleability it has put into the patent document and and into the prosecution process. So I, I'm not particularly worried that the fact that there's um, you know, some sauce being given to the goose uh, is like, OK, it's already all over the gander. Uh, so what's, what's, what's the problem? Uh, well, I, don't... Okay. I mean, both parties already have the opportunity to argue for broader or narrower constructions in federal court. If yeah, but were... only one of them I mean, drafted the patent document. And yeah. that's the patentee. Okay, but, but I mean, the thing is, anything that they argued, anything that the patentee argued in front of the patent trademark office um, when they originally got the patent uh, granted is going to be part of that patent's prosecution history. And so estoppel applies in federal court. If you try to make an argument to the Patent and Trademark Office that your patent's really narrow and that it doesn't cover very much and so it should be granted, you can't then turn around in federal court and argue something to the contrary. And that rule makes a lot of sense to me. And so I think that that same sort of rule ought to apply across these administrative proceedings as well, but it doesn't, basically. You can make one sort of argument in uh, in front of the agency and then another in court. Let, let me just say something quickly about Christian's uh, point, which is, you know, I'm I am largely convinced that at least in certain technological areas, patents are kind of out of control, and we have too many of them, and they're too powerful, uh, and they might be doing just as much to hamper innovation as they are to promote it. I guess I sort of don't feel like the way to go about that. You know, if you have this systemic problem with patents. The way to get a, get around it is to uh, make other sorts of mistakes in the law, which will affect all areas of law and just sort of hope that it kind of balances out in the end. I'd actually rather just, you know, address the problem head on. So, but I don't know, that's, that's, I don't know if that's a really great answer. I think that's just sort of, um, you know, it just feels like you're, you're now, you're, you're, you're creating more and more problems that you have to then clean up somewhere down the road. No, I, I figured that would be your answer. Um, g- given, you know, what, what you said earlier, partly because, you know, this is, it's a, it's a weird kind of bandaid way to increase the costs of infringement suits and decrease the, the costs of, of, uh, marginal patents as weapons. Right. Uh, right. but, but, it, and, and the, the right answer is more systematic reform. And I know that our listeners, by the way, will be disappointed if I don't say at some point during the show that I think all patents should be abolished. Right, Joe? And that's only because of the number of times you've said it in prior episodes. They're they're sitting here waiting for you to say it again. Because I haven't said said it in front of Jonathan, and they're thinking, what is the guest going to think when... when, That's right. Christian's pulling his punches, is what they were thinking. They were thinking you were being a little sniveling coward. (laughs) 
but now they know not you're, at all. I'm, you're just bold be, and... I'm just trying to be polite and talk in you know as we try to do interior to the paper rather than yeah, exterior, right? But uh, but but now that we've kind of zoomed out a little bit, <laughs> I think it's, it's it's fair to say one easy solution to the like. So I actually. Jonathan, I'm very sympathetic to the idea that the best way to do this is systematic reform of patents, and I have yeah. one particular kind of reform in mind. But um, <laughs> abolitionism, <laughs> specifically. <laughs> um, well, partly because you know, in terms of CBA, like even if you think that patents are valuable for pharmaceuticals, the question is how much more valuable are they than other forms of incentives that you could dream up and sure. you know, and, and then and where has that value stack up against all the harm all being the harms done? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, etc., etc., etc. Cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We, we can think of all that. So, so, so I'm very sympathetic to the idea that a more systematic kind of reform, even if it's not quite as ambitious as mine, uh, is, is better. But if you don't think that that's possible, then maybe snipping away at the margins of the value of patents um, to uh, as kind of enablers of positive private value and negative social value, then you would be in favor of those. And that's kind of what I read Breyer as having done here, right? Yeah, and I think that that's probably... Um a fair way to describe a lot of what the Supreme Court has done in past patent decisions where they've just sort of tried to snip away at patents at the margin. I mean, I guess my own view is that it's one thing to say, you know, we're just going to change this rule to make patents a little bit less valuable in some fashion. That seems totally fine and a reasonable approach. This is one where, you know, I I think it's just going to lead to sort of unproductive shenanigans. Um, And I also think that part of the problem is that it's going to affect all patents across every technology area. And uh, instead of being more directly targeted at particular patents in particular fields that are harmful. And so that seems to me it's a little bit of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Well, if, if history proves that you actually did become the head of the patent office, uh, Jonathan, in a future administration, uh, doctrinally, of course, uh, you and the Commerce Secretary can persuade the president that uh, this is a rule you should change. Right. And right. You, you have I, that I so. because it's uh, uh, I don't think anything Breyer said would suggest that the contrary approach would be unreasonable. No, absolutely not. I think they, this is just a choice left to the Patent and Trademark Office. And, Meaning a uh, choice left to you. Right, I I suppose. In your very very counterfactual world. Well, Jonathan, (laughs) if you do hold that post, um, I hope you learn to work well with Joe because Joe is likely to be the first secretary of the Department of Competition. Uh, I don't know if you've heard our prior episodes on this, but this is Joe's one of Joe's big ideas. No, I don't want to be the sec- no. I, w- I want to be the first chairman of the Federal Competition Commission. Oh, I don't, boy. I don't want it to be a department. I want it to be an independent commission. Independent commission. Uh, much better. No, look, hand, we'll be hand in glove. Awesome. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. This has been terrific. And yeah, uh, thanks for joining us. This yeah. is great. Well, thank thank you guys. This has been a real pleasure, and you you knew and understood the paper extraordinarily well. So I, I was very impressed. And a great way to for someone who wants to get into the CBA thing and understand it better, this is a great way to do that. They should pick up your paper and follow some of the sites that you give, uh, uh, judiciously give in 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 moderate number, um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and and they would be really well served by that. I think so that's it's right. Really great. Yeah, really great paper. So thanks a bunch, man. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. All right, take care. Take care. All right, bye bye.